The Right Stuff with Kevin and Casey. Episode 9, What Makes a Saint? Hey there, I'm Kevin. I'm Casey. And you're here for The Right Stuff Podcast, Episode 9. Nine. nine. How have we done nine? I know, nine, nine. What makes a saint? But also, how do we have that many people that want to listen to you and me just like <laughs> banter back and forth Y'all, we nine have to, episodes? We do have to give a shout out. We have people in like France and Germany and Ireland. We got a bunch of Irish friends. Right? Oh my gosh, Slancha people. Slancha. I'm telling you, that's amazing. I'm obsessed. Totally. 100%. So cool. Yeah. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what makes a saint. You know, we, we talked about praying to saints at one point in time during one of these podcasts. But uh, today, um, I think there are even a lot of Catholics that don't understand. How do you get to be a saint? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I feel like I could be a saint. <laughs> <laughs> so my mother tells me. You're a saint? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Okay, probably not. But well, it's you know. okay. Um, there's an entire process that happens in the Catholic Church for becoming a saint, and it actually developed over a long period. You know, like the it was legal to be to be a Christian uh, in the Roman Empire in 313 AD because Constantine made it a legal religion in in Rome. Um, but it wasn't till like 900 years later that there was an actual formula for people who entered heaven to be called saint which is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that process changed. So, um, and today, uh, we're actually going to like, uh, the Martle mass, right? It's, it, it, we're is making it a, mass or Martle's Martle. I think it's Martle mass. I mean, in English, <laughs> we would say Martle mass, right? Um, but we're, we're creating a martini to St. Martin of Tours, one of yeah. my favorite saints. Um, so this kind of goes right along with it. Like he, he, he became a saint and he is a beautiful personality. You should, you should Google him, use the Google, use and, the Google hole, right, right. And, and, uh, find out about, uh, St. Martin of Tours, T-O-U-R-S. So Kev, let's talk about St. Martin of Tours. He was a Roman soldier who, even before he was baptized, he was on fire with Christianity. Yeah. Right? But this is so stinking sweet. He, while still a catechumen, he saw a beggar shivering in the cold and tore his military cloak into giving him half, which in that time, the Roman army made you pay for half of your uniform. Yeah. So Martin gave the half that he had paid for. To somebody who was cold. I mean, come on, it's beautiful. man. Yeah, absolutely. So that night, Jesus Christ appeared to him in a dream wearing half cloak and said, Martin the catechumen hath clothed me. Oh, that's beautiful. So after that, he became a monk. See, you got to love, you got to love these stories. You got to love them. Um, you know, people who are so moved by, by certain things and you have to realize that like Christianity was still in its young ages when this happened. Like, it's not like today we don't have the 21st century Christian glasses on our face to Mm -hmm. say, this is what we believe. Like this was, this was the quote unquote early church. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, he, he did all of the things that he was supposed to do according to the tenets of Christ and, and Jesus literally appeared to him. So, that's a very cool thing. So um, there's a beautiful martini drink that we're going to make that is uh, dedicated to St. Martin of Tours, and it's called 
the Martel Mass, which means uh, basically Martin's Day, right? Um, uh, Saint Martin of Tours, the Martel Mass Martini. Uh, also at medieval feasts, uh, it was commonplace to like roast a giant goose that would feed a lot of people. So a goose, a goose. <laughs> so so they suggest that you that you use gray goose uh, vodka. But any good vodka will do. Like, it's not, this drink isn't dependent on Grey Goose, but it calls for two ounces of Grey Goose vodka, a dash of dry vermouth. To be perfectly honest, I kind of like my martinis with, like, a spritz of... of you just like it. Yeah, like, if you had a little bottle. spray bottle, tss, tss, you know, like, two little <laughs> two little spritzes of, of that vermouth, right? And a lemon twist. And you put it in a shaker filled with ice... And how many times do we shake it? Forty. Forty times, of course, because that's just that's the way it is. And you strain it into a cocktail glass garnish that's just with a good cocktail etiquette, etiquette. right? <laughs> it's good cocktail. Shake forty times, like, and it's funny to me, like forty is that beautiful uh, number that we see a lot of uh, imagery in in Christian uh, scripture, Christian literature. Forty is a Jewish term that literally means a generation. It means a long time. So you shake it long enough. That it chills. You shake and it, it long time. You shake it long time. <laughs> and it, it literally becomes uh, liquefied enough and enough of the ice melts into it that it becomes the perfect kind amalgamation of, yeah. of a beautiful martini, a right? Word. So you shake it 40 times, you garnish it with a lemon twist, and you present it in a beautiful martini glass. And the, the lemon twist actually represents Martin's torn cloak that he gave to... The gentleman who was cold. Yeah, I think that's a a lovely way to look at Martin of Tours, right? Um, So we're going to make this martini, and we are going to come back and talk about, hey, what actually makes a saint? But you know what's really interesting? Uh, I travel back and forth to Italy. I still have family there. And um, one of the things that's really cool is, uh, you know, we think of, like, graffiti being a really ugly thing here in the U.S., but graffiti in Rome is beautiful like there's a lot of artistic things on buildings that they they do with graffiti and and that sort of things but um you know what do you what do you call bible verses that are spray painted onto walls mm, why i'm so bad at this (laughs) because i just think this is just funny graffiti spray painted on walls it's a vandalism A vandalism. Okay. Oh, jeez. Okay. Like that. That it's going to get good. better from here, folks. No, I can promise no, you that. that's, that's good. good. Okay. I good think job. we peaked. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to have right. our Martel Mass Martini, and we're going to get back Martin, with you. Right. Pray, pray for, for us. us. Uh, we'll be back in a second, and we're going to talk about what actually makes a saint. The Right Stuff with Kevin and Casey. Episode 9, What Makes a Saint? And episode 9. You ready to get going? I am. So this topic is, what makes a saint? What makes a saint? So Kev, what? Does make a saint. Wow. How do you become a saint? Well, you know, St. Paul tells us we're all called to be saints, and he calls us saints in Scripture, though the Catholic Church has a process in which you become a saint. 
Okay. Um, and that process is called canonization. And we realize that canon uh, in the Catholic Church means law, right? Canon means law. So there's a canon of scripture. It's the law of scripture. The canonization process is the law in which one becomes a saint. And how do you get named that saint? There's an entire process. And it's fairly long and it's fairly drawn out, right? Um, and that canonization process uh, was kind of very open until the year 1234. Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire in 317 AD by Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, who became a Christian. Um, but it, it was 900 years before they actually codified and defined the law that defined what a person who was who became a saint. We could actually say they're in heaven and they're working on our behalf through intercessory prayer. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big old mouthful, right? But um, prior to that, um, you know, if you had a following of people, you know, I, I don't know if, I know a lot of Catholics know this, but maybe non-Catholics don't know this. Like St. Christopher is the patron saint of travel, right? But Christopher actually was kind of demoted from becoming a saint because we don't know that there was an actual person named Christopher. We don't even know who he was, if he was. He became a uh, kind of like a, uh, a celebrity that had a following of people who said that he was the patron saint of travel. And so he just officially became the patron saint of travel prior to the Middle Ages. Uh, this was all before the canon, canonization process in 1234. So um, usually those holy people were declared saints at their death. Today, we have an entire process that we have to go through, the canonization process that is... Uh, uh, procured by the Vatican, and they put you through this very rigorous, very rigorous uh, inquisition, basically, mm -hmm. to say, you are a saint, right? Mm -hmm. um, before that legalization of uh, Christianity by Constantine, in the tombs of martyrs like St. Peter, they were marked and they were kept for places of homage. So obviously, Peter being uh, an apostle, more than likely, he would be a saint, like given that he hung out with Jesus Christ and he was proclaimed the first pope, he would definitely, definitely be a saint, right? And on the anniversaries of their death, uh, they were remembered and placed on the local church calendars. So that was super important for that sort of thing. Um, the church went on to basically tighten their canonization process. And sometimes, unfortunately, fixtures, figures of legends were honored as saints, which is what we see with St. Christopher. We don't really know that he was actually a person and or therefore deserving to be called a saint, right? Uh, once the local church in Sweden canonized an imbibing monk who was killed in a drunken brawl, and there's hardly evidence of martyrdom. He just, like, was killed because he was drunk. So prior Poor to the year... Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> let's think. And he was Swedish, so those nights are long, and, you know, all they had was vodka, right? So uh, prior to the year 1234, Pope, uh, Pope Gregory, at that point in time, uh, Gregory the Ninth established procedures to investigate the life of a candidate saint and any attributed miracles that they might have been a part of. So in 1588, 1588 uh, Pope 
Pope Sixtus the Fifth. Sixtus the Fifth. That's I don't even understand what the words right, are that are coming out of your the, mouth. <laughs> Sixtus is his name, but he's the fifth Sixtus. I'm an everyday father. Yeah, that's right. Right. Really he was in. Confusing. He was in. He was entrusted the Congregation of Rites. Later, later named the Congregation of Causes for Saints. That's what we have today: the Causes for Saints mm-hmm. to oversee the entire process. And beginning in 1634. Pope Urban VIII, and since then, various popes have revised and improved the norms and procedures for canonization. So this is not something that was developed in the early church. This is something that we have honed in on and made sure that we could actually proclaim someone to be in heaven and working on our behalf. This was a very long and arduous process for the Vatican to be able to happen. If you think that uh, Christianity was legal in 317 AD, and we're already talking about Pope Urban VIII in 1634, this is a 1300 year. Good night. Yeah, a 1300 year development in the Catholic Church. So that's that's super important. Uh, what ends up happening in that 1300 years? We hone in more and more and more and more to make things more defined and more clear so that we understand them. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal, right? Mm -hmm. So today the process kind of proceeds as follows. When a person dies who has something that we call fame of sanctity or fame of martyrdom, um, the bishop of that particular diocese usually initiates something that we call investigation, right? What has this person done? What has this person done to potentially be called a saint. One element is whether there are any special favor or miracle that has been granted through this candidate saint's intercession. The church will also investigate the candidate's writings to see if they investigate purity of doctrine, uh, essentially nothing heretical or against the faith. We think of like, um, do you know who uh, St. Faustina is? Yeah. She is uh, the divine mercy prayer, Mm -hmm. right? And Jesus visited her. And she was a very simple, very simple young woman. And yet these writings were so lofty and so unbelievably beautiful. There was no way to escape the fact that potentially Jesus had visited her and talked to her about his divine mercy, right? So obviously uh, her writings were not heretical. They were very much in line with Catholic teaching and that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um all of the information is then gathered and then a transumptuum or a faithful copy, duly authenticated and sealed, is submitted to that congregation of, uh, of causes to a Carmelite ministry in Cologne, Germany, right? And then uh, that sort of thing happens where there is a team of people who investigate. And it's very much like a trial that would happen to be in the court system today. There are people who want to promote the cause, right? Mm-hmm. The the offense and the people who want to defend the cause, the defense to say, no, this person can't possibly be a saint, right? Um, and I want to uh, let you know that I think it's actually kind of comical um, that we have a phrase that was coined by the Catholic Church um, called the devil's advocate, right? Yeah. They're the people who didn't want something to happen. They didn't want this person to become a saint because there wasn't enough evidence. The offense uh, wants this thing to happen. The defense does not want it to happen, right? Um, and, and, and that 
that has gone on basically in its current form since 1634. So we're almost on, you know, 400 years of this particular way that we define who becomes a saint in the Catholic Church, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, one of the, the most uh, recent, or I should say two of the most recent, John Paul, uh, Pope John Paul II, and Mother Teresa have both been canonized. Uh, one of the things that's really important for the church to do is to not go on the hype of fame, right? It's easy in this day and age with someone like John Paul II or Mother Teresa when there are actual writings, when we have news articles where we have video, we actually know who this human being is, to be able to say, this person could become a saint, right? Mm -hmm. But the Catholic Church makes us specifically wait at least five years so that the hype of this person kind of dies down a little, so that the emotional value doesn't say, let's make them a saint right now, right? right? Which... um... A lot of people don't realize, but there is up for canonization um, a millennial saint, which, who would be the first millennial saint, mm-hmm. which is Carlo Acatus. Mm-hmm. Do I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. So he was, um, he's from Milan. Right. And he died of leukemia, right. I believe. Yep. Um, but he, I mean, he was amazing. Like in this day and age, he's from. Recent history, right? Recent history. Right. He died in what, 2006? Right. I think it was. Right. He loved playing video games. Right. His, his game of choice was PlayStation 2, which, <laughs> right? right? I mean, like, I, it, like, it's so amazing to me. But his body, even where where he um, remains, is in a glass case, and he looks like he's just sleeping. Right. And he his um, wardrobe, he's just in casual clothes, like a. It looks like he's wearing a, um, oh, what do you call it? Like the Adidas with yeah. stripe, yeah. Um, yeah. whatever, like a, exercise, like a, workout, like a soccer, kind of yeah, thing, yeah, like a soccer outfit sure. or something. Um, but he's just wearing that. Like that was his clothing of choice yep. when he was alive. And um, Meaning that, you know, there were saints who were canonized uh, in the early church, saints that were canonized in the Middle Ages, saints that were canonized 400 years ago, and someone like Carlo who could be canonized that even people who are walking the face of the earth today could reckon with, and even young children who still play uh, play with PlayStation 2, you can relate to this guy. Right. Right? Right? And And we think of, like, when we think of saints, we think of somebody who's older or... But thinking about it right now, I mean, I'm technically a millennial. Right. And thinking about... I mean, I consider myself an elder millennial, but... I'm technically a millennial based on all the statistics, but knowing that there is somebody that is up for sainthood right. that is a millennial also, I am just blown away by that. And being at my age right now, and because he died when he was, what, 16, I think? Yes. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> you know? like What are we all doing with our wow. life? Wow. Right? We he should died, do the same. By his choice, he died in Assisi. Right. He because he loved um, Assisi and he loved Saint Francis, right. and that's that's what he wanted. And um, it's incredible. Right. Right. But he has not been canonized yet. No, and 
And he's on the process to become what we call a literal saint in the Catholic Church. And what does that process look like? I feel like that's what we're here today to talk about. What is the process? I think a lot of Catholics don't even understand what does it actually take to become a saint. And a lot of non-Catholics who don't think that this is a legitimate thing, there is a lot that goes into it when the Catholic Church proclaims this human being that died and is now in heaven is a saint, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot to that. So the process of recognizing a saint starts no earlier than five years after the person's death. We have to let the hype die down so that people aren't emotionally connected to the decision for this person to become a saint, right? And then usually the potential saint's pastor, uh, like their, the, the person who leads their church is the one who brings that cause to a bishop of their diocese. And the specific stages are met on a path to being declared an official saint, okay? So one of the first thing that happens, you become something that we call a servant of God. As soon as the person is accepted for consideration by the Vatican, they get a title called servant of God, right? That means they're worthy of knowing that, like, God's probably working through them and they have listened to his call and they are working as a servant of God, which I think is, like, it's a beautiful title for anyone that's even being considered to become a saint. You've said yes, Mm -hmm. you know, and we know historically through scripture, uh, one of the most important things, Mary's fiat. Think about Mary's fiat. She said yes. She could have said no, but what did she say? She said yes. All of these people who are considered servants of God at some point in time said yes. So that, that's giant. Then they become something that's called venerable. After the Vatican Congregation for the Causes of Saints determines that the servant of God lived a life of heroic virtue, that they're really holy, right? That person is granted the title of venerable, and her heroic virtue doesn't mean that the person was perfect or sinless by any means, but that means they worked aggressively to improve their spirituality and never gave up on trying to be better and grow in holiness, which any one of us who are still alive on this planet should aspire to be mm-hmm. like, yeah? Mm-hmm. Grow in our holiness. That's what we do. We right. grow in our holiness, right? We're constantly working right. on that. So if they're declared venerable, um, and that's cool with the Vatican, they go to the next step, right? And they become something that's called a blessed, right? Um, and after the church establishes one miracle, what does that mean? Okay, uh, it's easy for us to understand any sort of miracles that occur in science today. Let's say there's a person who has a brain tumor that's the size of a golf ball, right? And there's a group of people who actually pray, and we we established this on the Pray to Saints episode. There are a group of people who pray to someone who ask for their intercession to say, Lord, if it's your will, please allow this tumor, this giant cancer that's on this person's brain to disappear so they can survive, right? Um, And it actually happens. The tumor's gone. They go in for an MRI. They see a golf ball-sized tumor. And within two weeks, the tumor has completely healed. There's no existence of this tumor. There's nothing that science can verify that it's done to heal this person, right? It's it's very spiritual, and it's gone beyond that. Um, That's what we mean by um, a miracle, 
in the Catholic Church. There are plenty of miracles, but that's one easy example, I think, for all of us to, to understand. The venerable science yeah. a lot to prove. We we try I feel like Catholicism is really great in using science to try and prove that something is not a miracle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To only be able to say Hey, this is a miracle. Right. They, I mean, they do everything in their power to prove that something is not a miracle prior to saying that this is That it a is a miracle. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And so that person's venerable cause is presented to the Pope to see whether that person is deemed to be worthy of being called blessed, right? That means they have to have one miracle behind them. They have to do something miraculously from heaven interceding on someone's behalf here in the church militant, fighting to get to heaven, right? And that step is called beatification, right? Um, Which that I didn't realize. Yes. Like, obviously, there's some that there's miracles on earth. And, I mean, think about Mother Teresa. Yeah, of course. All the work that she did, Right. right? Right. But then you go a step further and you say, okay, now she's working from, from the other heaven, side. Right? She has to be working that's from a heaven. Whole, but that's also, again, the Catholic Church tries to prove that that didn't happen. Right, right. They use science to prove that it didn't happen. Right. And when there's no other, like... There's no other argument. There's no other argument. They're like, there's no other explanation for this. This is what it is. It's got to be very spiritual and very holy. Right. That's so it's a lot right. to be considered a saint. Yeah. So that step, that first step is called beatification and it's the next to the last step. It's not the last step. Sheesh. The Catholic Church doesn't go with one miracle. Well, I'm well on my way. <laughs> She's got to <laughs> see two before you become a saint. Wow. There's an there's an extra step. So uh, to actually be called a saint, the Catholic Church requires another miracle. And the blessed person's cause is presented to the Pope again for for his judgment. And if he determines that the evidence is clear and that the contrary reports aren't credible, you know, people are going to try to say, this isn't science. This isn't science. This isn't science. Um, You know, of course, we go beyond science. This is a miracle. This is something that can't occur in science, right? He may initiate the canonization procedure, and if all goes well, that candidate is publicly recognized as a saint. They're canonized as a saint. So um, a, a, a lot of this involves prayer. Um, we have to understand that when people want something and they know someone that has been involved in a particular subject matter, they ask that person for intercession. And when that intercession is proven to be moving from heaven and not from earth, you get to be a saint. Mm -hmm. But only after you prove it twice, not just once. It's really, really complicated and really hard to become a saint. Like, it's not the easiest thing on the planet. So um, think about the fact that, like... um, there's there's a patron saint for practically everything. It's kind of crazy to think about it. Um, but like you pray to someone for people who have cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, saint Peregrine. Uh, Peregrine is the patron saint of cancer. Why? 
patron that patron had cancer he knew what it was like to live with cancer Mm -hmm. he had cancerous boils on his legs that would just erupt and bleed and he had a hard time walking and he knew what it was like to be a victim of cancer uh he knew the pain he knew the suffering he knew all the things that went along with it and therefore if someone is praying to saint peregrine They're asking for his intercession to understand and bring that person's cause on behalf to God himself and say, please cure them or whatever you will be, uh, Mm -hmm. let it be for this person. Sure. It's a it's a beautiful story every time around. That we think well, about and I know a lot of people that have prayed to um, Saint Therese, Mm -hmm. Therese, Mm -hmm. um, the little flower, right? Yeah, she and I don't know that there's a specific thing that she is the patron saint of. She's just this, the uh, St. Therese, the little flower. The little way. Right? Yeah, the simple things. But there right? are so many stories. I mean, there's my mom and dad when they were trying to um, get pregnant and they were really upset that they weren't able to get pregnant. My mom was doing the, the novena to St. Therese sure. or St. Therese. And, uh, my little cousin or little, he was older than I am, but, um, he ended up bringing her a rose Yeah, because she's supposed to speak to you through roses. Right. 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 Um, and she, and he ended up bringing my mom a rose that he had just picked from the garden. And within a couple of weeks, my parents got a call that they were adopting twins. Wow. You know, and I got another one from my, um, a really good friend of mine. She, they were praying to St. Therese because she was pregnant and they got really bad news that the baby was not going to be healthy and she had a hole in her heart and all of that. And they were getting ready to go on vacation to Florida and they went to Walgreens that morning to go pick up some sunscreen and other things before they left. And in the parking lot, no other cars around, like, Five o'clock in the morning, a single red rose was laying in the parking lot. Wow. They went to their ultrasound the next time. Nothing was wrong with that baby. And they have a healthy baby girl now. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. So, I mean, all to say, saints do, I fully believe, play on our behalf. They work on our behalf all the time. They really do. And they they have a part in... And what's going on here on earth. One of the things that I think that we discount in the fact, one, if we're not Catholic, or two, if we're Catholics that don't understand this concept, is the fact that, like, love never ends. Love never ends, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that's really cool is the fact that, um, you know, uh, Jesus uh, in Scripture literally took those Ten Commandments and basically made them two. You know, love love God first. And then the second commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. If you love people like you would love yourself, you'll, you won't commit the other eight, right? Yeah. You're not going to go any further than that, right? right? Um, so when you are gone from this planet, um, we're all part of the same church. If you happen to be in heaven, you know, the beauty in it is like, I loved my grandmother, right? And I don't say in the past tense, I loved my grandmother. I never stopped loving her. She's not here anymore, but I still love her, right? It's like when you say, oh, I had a friend and his name right, was Right, right, right. His Bob. name still is, Oh, right? his, his name his still, name still is, is Bob. His name still is Bob, right? <laughs> so my, my grandmother 
Uh, the beauty of that is she still loves me and she's still looking out for me, yeah. which is absolutely beautiful. So do I but think even that people you don't know? Yeah, because they love humanity. Correct. They love us all because they're in the place of perfect love. Correct. Right. So what do they do? They, they constantly pray for us so that we can have the best that we can have all the time spiritually and physically on this planet because we're all fighting so hard to get to the same place, right? Um, and, and the beauty in that is love never ends. So we ask them out of love to assist us and out of their love, because they're so close to God, they ask him to help us. And, and that just never ends and it's a beautiful thing. Um, the process is complicated and it's big. But since 1634, the only people whose existence can be verified and whose lives can be examined are possible candidates for canonization. So we can't utilize the fact that, like, so-and-so lived in this village and he held the lava off from a volcano that erupted to mm-hmm. save people. Like, there are saints that are, are uh, saints today because of things like that. But the process has literally changed, right? And candidates for sainthood undergo a very specific investigation. Informative inquiries are made into the person's life, reputation, and their activities while they're here on earth, right? So Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a big deal about finding out who this person actually was as a human being, as a person, right? And then there has to be proof that no one has proclaimed or is already proclaiming and honoring the person as a saint before that person is declared a saint, right? So that that complicates the process. Like, you can't say, oh my gosh, this person must be a saint because they're helping right. before they open an investigation. Because that causes something that we call a cult following that's not a very realistic viewpoint of this person, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a thorough examination of the person's written and potential spoken transcripts uh, and works. So um, potentially any letters. And think about Carlo in this day and age, maybe emails that he may have written. Like, and he did right, but we he we did didn't instant messenger. <laughs> think about like, but seriously, think about no, that. I like, ICQ, right? I you I don't. Most mm-hmm. people probably don't even mm-hmm. know what that was, but ICQ, Yahoo Messenger, right? That was huge in right. the early two thousand. Of course, it was when I was yeah. when I was in high school. I mean, that's how we communicated with our friends because we didn't have phones, right? So, yeah, of course he did emailing. He did instant messaging. Right. Think about it. He also did the PlayStation 2. Right. So there was messaging through that, I think. I don't yep. know. I'm not a gamer, but, like, I, I think that there was messaging through that. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we look at their history. We look at everything about them. Anything that they may have said, anything that that may have written, uh, and in this day and age, anything that they, that they may have typed on their computer keyboard, right? I mean, it, like we have a record of all of that and we can pull it up um, to know what this person was like and to be able to open that cause and investigate. So if the thorough background check leads the investigators to declare the candidate venerable, evidence of miracles attributed to the candidate's intercession with God is sought. Mm-hmm. We follow suit. We We try to we try to prove and or disprove. So those miracles need to be documented and authenticated so that eyewitnesses alone are considered insufficient. 
So it can't be one person who verifies the information, right? Medical, scientific, psychiatric, and theological experts are consulted, and the evidence is given to them for their professional opinion. And if it's if it's a scientific, medical, or psychological explanation exists for what had appeared to be a miracle, um, then it isn't an authentic miracle, right? If you can right. prove it with science, it's not really an authentic miracle. So only immediate, spontaneous, and inexplicable phenomena are up for consideration as authentic miracles. We can't explain it. If, it, if we can't explain it, um, it's probably from God. It's probably occurring from heaven. We have no scientific way to say, this is why this happened. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. That's Huge. a big deal, right? Um, Which is what I love. Yeah. Uh, a group of Italian doctors, the Consulta Medica. Of course you can say right? that. Examine, <laughs> they examine healing. Like they're like, if it, if it happens to be a medical miracle, they are the folks who examine the healing miracles. Some of the doctors aren't Catholic. In fact, some of them aren't Christian. They might be Jewish or Muslim or whatever. Um, and some are, but they're all qualified and renowned physicians. They don't declare a healing miracle, but instead say, we can find no scientific or medical explanation for the cure. Until they come to that point, um, we can't officially say a miracle has occurred. So That's they, fantastic. it's rigorous. It's rigorous. They go it through is. all these tests, right? Besides miraculous. I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super thankful for that. Because we don't want to just turn it over because we say the church said so. Well, and you don't want to be like Oprah where right. you're like, you're you a saint. You're a saint. You're a saint. You're you're a saint. saint. Right. Yeah. Like you right. don't, you don't want to be like that. Right. right. Like I just, I, I love this. Yeah. I think this is fantastic and i'm so glad it's such a rigorous process yeah 100 there are other interesting things i think that that you might find that are uh attributed to saints that aren't just normal healing miracles and i think that's cool they examine other phenomena like something they called uh incorruptibility so if you go to the vatican and you're in saint peter's some folks are buried in glass cases and they're still visible at the Vatican, right? Like Carlo. Yeah. But I mean, he's not considered a saint yet. Right. But, but he, he is could in a glass be case. incorruptible. He is being, he is going through the process. Right. He's being investigated. Of at it. Sure. But, but um, incredible. incorruptibility is one of those really interest, interesting things that long after, like, a saint may have died, their body is found free from decay. You know, they don't, they don't decay when they're exhumed from a grave. Like, what the heck? Right. Like, they might be exhumed from being buried for 200 years, and they look exactly the same as when they were buried. And you have to think about the fact that, like, 200 years ago, there wasn't something that we call embalming fluid to keep people looking normal for a long time. Uh, what right? are you talking about, the Egyptians? <laughs> well, they, they used a whole different set of, like... <laughs> Like they, they, they did a whole different set of things to people, yeah. but um, I've seen mummies. I know. I've seen mummies. They still have their nose hairs. Hello, mummy. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the church considers like St. Catherine of Siena to be an example of someone who's incorruptible. She died in 1380 and like 650 years later without any embalming. Her flesh hasn't decomposed. Like mm -hmm. she looks the same after 650 years. Like, how does that happen? How does that happen? Ask the mummies. Right, right. Other <laughs> than a miracle. Like, God has allowed her not to decay. Um, 
Uh, one of my favorites, and I have to say this because he's my patron saint, Saint Blaze. Um, you know, he uh, uh, has something that's attributed to him that's called liquefaction. So when he died, they saved several vials of his blood. And that dried blood, long dead from this person, miraculously liquefies on the day that they entered heaven. So the day that they oh, died wait, here didn't on Didn't we earth, just talk about this? We did. We did talk about this in a previous episode. Like, um, but it li- wasn't same. Yeah, right? it is same place. It, it was like same he, place. Like he's the most prolific person to understand this whole liquefaction. Like um, there was a point in time when Pope Francis was elected to be the Pope and he visited Naples and he went to the cathedral where uh, the vials are kept. And uh, St. Blaise was so happy to see him, not even on his feast day, his blood liquefied in that front of insane. Pope Francis. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's a really, really cool thing. So, um, I mean, I think that's fantastic, but I'm also like, if I were to see that, I don't know how I would yeah. react. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, might be like, St. Blaise. Yeah. St. Gennaro, the, the patron saint of Naples, like his, his blood liquefies every feast day and two other times during the year. Um, so that's a that's a beautiful thing. Uh, according to the church, a vial of his dried blood literally liquefies every year in his feast day on September 19th. So, you know, there, there are a couple of examples of this that we see where um, it's a heavenly intercession to say, hey, I'm still here and I'm with you and I'm praying on your behalf. There's a really cool thing that's called the odor of sanctity. A holy odor, right? Odor? Like stinky? Smell. Like smell. Think about what happens when a person dies. Like think about what happens when you when you rummage across something that has died in the wilderness, right? You get kind of that stench of decomposing material, right? Mm. The body uh, of a saint sometimes exudes a sweet aroma like roses other than the, the pungent. Like St. Therese. Yes, exactly, right? She had odor of sanctity. A holy smell. Right? I could totally see her smelling like roses. Right. Um, she was an example. She died in 1582. And like that. She probably still smells like roses. I'm sure she does. Uh, but the church Can literally. I smell in a perfume? <laughs> <laughs> Eau de Therese. Is that morbid? <laughs> Eau de Therese, right? But, um, you know. Um, the church believes her grave literally exuded a sweet smell nine months after she died. It smelled like roses around the grave. I believe it. I totally believe Um, that. I do have to say that my friend Denise and I once were walking through a a monastery and a church um, in Wisconsin that's called Holy Hill. And they have a beautiful outdoor walk that takes you through all of the stations of the cross. And we got to one of the stations of the cross that involved Mary. It was the beginning of December. We're in Wisconsin. It's probably 36 degrees. It's just above freezing. Nothing's still alive. All the leaves have fallen from the trees. And we get to this particular station and I start praying and I'm like, do you smell that? Roses in the middle of December out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it occurs like that odor of sanctity is is a very beautiful thing. Right. And so I've experienced that type of craziness. And you, and sometimes you just try to pass it off as something that could be explained. Um, Oh, I do that all the time because I'm a realist. Right. But like, honestly, I, I'm constantly like, Right. No, this can be explained. Right. But oftentimes you can't explain it. 
You just There's can't. sometimes where I'm like, you know what? It's fine. I'm right. just going to toss that up to, that's God. Right. 100%. That's God. That's a, that's a saint. That's somebody that's watching over me. Yep. Yep. Uh, which is kind of crazy, but kind of true. So I think that this would be a good place for us to uh, go to our list of things that people may have sent in and asked us some questions. Yeah, I think let's get to questions. There's probably a lot to this that people need to know. Yeah, I need to know. Let's do it. Okay, <laughs> all right. The Right Stuff with Kevin and Casey. So here goes, Case. Uh, first question that we got in. Was, question. Question. Um, exactly how many saints are there? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a really good question. That is a good question. There are over 10,000 named saints and beati um, from history. So from the Roman martyology and Orthodox sources. But we don't really have a definitive headcount. No. No. Um, if you go to the Catholic, like there's an encyclopedia of saints, right? And this is what they're talking about when, when they use the number 10,000. Um, it's broken up into volumes, right? There are several sure. volumes of the encyclopedia of saints because it gives their name, all of the information about them, their life, etc. Um, and those who are saints and those who are, who are beatified and that sort of thing... But understand that any person that is no longer in existence on this plane with us that has died and has gone to heaven is literally a saint. Right. So how do we name them all? Yeah. We don't. Which is what we had talked about during the um, confirmation portion of one of our episodes. Right. Which, because my grandmother was my confirmation sponsor, right. which technically it's supposed to be a saint, but who's to say that she's not a saint because right. I chose my grandmother. Right. So how do you put a number? Right. And even when we don't know those who happen to be saints, like we're coming up, uh, uh, like this, this actual podcast will air after All Saints Day. But there's a day on the Catholic calendar called All Saints Day that we literally pray to all the people who might not be a named saint in the Catholic Church, but that have passed from this existence and are in heaven with God and interceding on our behalf. All of them. Like your grandmother. Right. Like my my grandmother, St. Elizabeth of Newark, New Jersey, yeah. right? So, right? We, that's how we... Because, well, and, you know, at my church in my hometown, um, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, we... At St. Vincent de Paul, mm -hmm. we always do um, an... All Saints Day and any any person of your family that has passed on, we post yep. on poster boards yep. and we put them throughout the church and everybody just prays for them. Right. Um, so my cousin was always on there because he died when he was 25. Yep. My uncle was on there or is on there. My grandparents yep. are on there. So who's to say they're not saints? Right. We don't know. At, at the cathedral where we, where we both attend, there's something at the rear of the church that we have a book that people sign that's called the Book of Remembrance. Same concept. Yeah, it's the same. So that we literally write their names in the book and every day they're, they're prayed for. Yeah. 
especially during the month of November, which is the month. And I of, love that of the saints and 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 the souls. And so. it's also a way for them to not be forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. We keep them current. We keep them we fresh. Do. Right. Another good question. I think we got. Yeah. When did the church start honoring saints? Wow. This is an early thing for us. You know, by the year 100, uh, 100 AD, Christians were honoring other Christians who died and had gone before them. And they were asking for their intercession, right? Many people think that honoring saints was something that the church set up later. But it was an early part of Christianity from the very beginning. Uh, as a matter of fact, this practice came from a long-standing tradition in the Jewish faith. Honoring prophets and holy people with shrines. And the first saints were martyrs, people who had given up their lives for the faith in persecution of Christians. Um, one of the coolest things that I think if you ever go to the Vatican and you visit something called the Necropolis, there's a mm -hmm. place right under uh, mm -hmm. St. Peter's Basilica. Why is it called St. Peter's? Because St. Peter was literally buried right Underneath. under the altar of yeah. St. Peter's you know, to nearly 2,000 years ago. And people at that point in time would make pilgrimages to honor this person who was persecuted, who suffered greatly and went before them and still intercedes on our behalf. Mm -hmm. It's a very cool thing. Yeah. So the last question I have for you is keeping statues or pictures of saints idol tree. Oh, heavens no. Right? right? <laughs> I was going to say. Why do you... I feel like we've touched on this yeah, we before. Have, we have. Why do you keep a picture of your wife or your children or your yeah. pet or your grandma in your wallet, right? It's always a sweet remembrance. Around my house. Right. You look at that picture and you think about this person, right? And so what a better way, what, what a beautiful sacramental it is for us to remind ourselves. So we have an icon on the wall of, right. of Mary, or we have a statue of a particular saint that we have an affinity to that reminds us of their journey of faith and their life in Christ and how we want to be like them. It's not idolatry. We don't idolize that person. It, it is a, it's, it's a remembrance. It's uh -huh. a way for us to look at this person and their particular faith journey to drive us forward. They're inspiration for us. Those pictures are in for inspiration for us. Just like, let's say you're on a, on a, um, a business trip and you miss your wife and you look in your wallet and there's the picture of your wife and you're like, oh, like that's a sweet, like it's a very sweet <laughs> What's thing. What's that like? <laughs> oh, right? I don't know. I don't know yet, but I guess we'll figure, this, figure that out at some point in life. But in, in any case, you know, it's, it's a remembrance thing. Yeah. It's a remembrance thing. It, it you're not idolizing that person in the sense of an idol. You don't worship them at all. Right. It's something that reminds you of their journey and how you can be more like them. Of course. Yeah. So y'all, uh, thanks for joining us for, for this episode. And if you want to visit all of our socials and things, linktree slash the right stuff, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash T-H-E-R-I-T-E-S-T-U-F-F. You can find everything there. And again, visit our YouTube channel to find out this particular drink, the Martel Mass Martini. Uh, make it with us. We got a whole new format for, for, for shaking up our cocktails. And hopefully we'll see you soon. Spot and Bohem. The Right Stuff with Kevin and Casey.